Welcome to New Creation Family Church. I hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning, church. It's good to be here. Um, I'm just going to share a small part of my story with you. Um, I've been struggling with depression on and off for quite a large part of my adult life. Um, the symptoms started after I gave birth to my first child with postnatal depression, but it certainly wasn't acknowledged, wasn't diagnosed. Um, but the seeds of this were sown quite a long time before that, when I was still a child. Uh, my father, who's passed away, who was an absolute darling, he did have very high standards. And um, from a young age, I learned that to be accepted and loved by him, I had to be strong, I had to be successful. Um, this lesson was further embedded into my life when I was 12 years old. Unfortunately, my mom actually had what was called in those days a nervous breakdown. And um, she took to her bed and um, did not give my sister or I very much attention. Um, my dad at that point was working in Zimbabwe, so he wasn't around. And I experienced a lot of abandonment at that point in my life from both my parents. Um, when my dad came back um, to stay with us again, he saw what a state my mother was in and he actually said to her that she needed to go away, leave the family home, and she could only come back when she was better. Um, what I learned from that was that feelings, especially negative feelings, were very dangerous. If I allowed myself to feel them or express them, then I too could be sent away, abandoned, and left alone. So this put me onto a course in my life of pushing all negative feelings and thoughts down, not acknowledging them, and eventually not even being able to feel those negative thoughts, no, those negative feelings. I actually despised every part of myself that seemed to, be, to me to be weak or vulnerable. And at the beginning of my healing journey, God actually showed me quite a shocking picture of myself. I was standing um, with a panga in my hand, and surrounding me were all these dismembered body parts, the parts of myself that I had rejected and cut off. Because of this, I had no real sense of identity. I was fragmented. I had a lot of self-hatred. So it wasn't surprising at this point that I was suffering from depression and anxiety. I also had a deep sense of shame around this emotional struggle. Um, I had promised myself as a child that I would never, ever be like my mother. And um, I also felt as a Christian that I was failing in having the struggle with depression and anxiety because we all know the scripture that says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? Um, but I was unable to live in the reality of that. So um, it all came to a head about two years ago when I was seeing a counselor, and he was a very well-meaning counselor. He decided that he would um, trigger me into an experiencing deep pain that I had suppressed for most of my life. Um, this was quite an explosive thing for me. And I think he realized then that he was in some deep waters and he wasn't quite sure how to handle it. He wasn't equipped to handle it. Um, so on the top of that, then, he just told me to go away and find a different counselor. Um, unfortunately for me, this was a real echo of my father telling my mother to go away. Um, and I actually became so traumatized from this that I started experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, 
um, at that time, which was a real struggle. But thankfully, the Lord was at work. He was so faithful. He is always faithful, even when we are not faithful. And I began to realize that God loved me completely, even the parts of myself that I hated and rejected, maybe especially those parts. I was reminded of that scripture um, in Corinthians where Paul talks about the weaker parts of the body, and I know he was talking about the body of Christ um, getting special honor. And I felt God starting to speak to me about the weaker parts of myself and how I needed to invite them back and accept them and embrace them and how he also did that. Um, he, even, um, he was even encouraging me to just, to, just to, to treat those parts that I hated with special honor. So I was slowly able to connect back to those parts of myself, learning to love myself better. I started experiencing a great sense of wholeness and the pain and the trauma began to recede. My sense of identity started to be rooted in who Jesus said I was, not in keeping myself safe. He was teaching me that I am his beloved. The sense of shame and failure as a Christian also began to diminish. When I read in the Garden of Gethsemane how Jesus struggled um, as he had to grapple and face what was going to happen to him, he struggled emotionally, and, and the word says he even sweated blood. Um, and on the cross, he experienced the pain of abandonment of his father. So we have a high priest who understands how we feel, who knows what it's like to be in emotional pain, who knows what it's like to be in physical pain. So I'm still on a journey. I'm in a much better place now, and I'm thankful to the Lord that he holds me and he loves me no matter how I'm feeling. Um, the the loving connection that I experience now with my father is so precious to me. I was just thinking the other day how much I guard that, how much I appreciate that. Not, it's not to be taken for granted. just want to end off with a quote from Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen is one of my favorite people. <laughs> um, he said, be surprised by joy. Be surprised by the little flower that shows its beauty in the midst of a barren desert. And be surprised by the immense healing power that keeps bursting forth like springs of fresh water from the depth of our pain. Thank you. Um, I'm very excited to be talking to you this morning, to be able to share God's word with you. Um, I, this is a word that's been brewing in my heart since October. Um, my daughter and I were lying on her bed and I was reading a story to her, and I was like, um, I have questions. This one page just doesn't cover it for me. And it led to me spending two months in the book of Exodus, and I'm still not finished. Um, so we've, I've been hanging out with Moses and uh, Pharaoh and the Israelites a little bit. Lauren, you read the scripture last week, and it's hung out with me this week. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 10. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and his heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stormy, stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. 
The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Let's pray together. Father, we lift up our hearts to you this morning and we pray that you would examine them. We pray that you would soften our hearts towards your ways to hear your word, to walk in your truth, to do your will. Father, we pray that when you look for us, you would find us planted by the living waters, bearing fruit even in the drought, without fear or anxiety for what is to come in life. We lift up Sharon and Jared, Lord Jesus, and we pray, Father God, that they would be anxious for nothing, that you would carry them through this time. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So I want to talk this morning about the defining moment that involves breaking the script. Defining moments are moments that are memorable, right? Sometimes they're great, they're great moments, they're highs, and sometimes they're terrible moments. And Anne's just shared with her some defining moments in her life that shaped the way that she felt and thought about herself um, and about what was allowed and what was acceptable. When God moved the Israelites out out of Egypt, this was a defining moment. He moved them out of slavery, and he broke their script. Their their current reality was oppression. They were enslaved. They were murdered if they didn't do the right thing. Pharaoh had decided that they had become too numerous in number, and so his solution to this problem was to drown all the baby boys that were born in fantasize. Can you imagine having your baby child born and then ripped out of your hands by the very midwives that helped you deliver and thrown into the Nile for the crocodiles to eat. This was how Pharaoh decided to control the numerous Israelites. Is that not the definition of evil? Pharaoh was an evil, evil man. And Exodus 6 talks about the freedom from oppression that, that Moses came to deliver. So let's look at Moses for a sec. So Exodus 1 to 4 talks about the defining, mo- the defining moments of Moses' life. So firstly, Moses managed to escape infanticide. So his mother was able to hide him, and the midwives that delivered him went against Pharaoh's command and hid him from the, from the, the, the Egyptian soldiers so that he wasn't thrown into the Nile and, eat, and fed to the crocodiles. But it it, it couldn't last. She couldn't hide him forever. And so the next thing that happened was he got put into a basket and sent down the crocodile-infested Nile and discovered by... I'm pretty sure he was strategically placed, right? I don't think they just kind of sent him on his way. Okay, so he he gets rescued by an Egyptian princess and he essentially grows up in the royal household as an Egyptian. So while he might be an Israelite, he is growing up as an Egyptian. He's learning the Egyptian culture. He's learning about all the Egyptian gods. And remember, they were numerous. Um, And he eventually stumbles upon his true identity and all of a sudden realizes that he's actually Hebrew. He's not Egyptian. He's got a total identity crisis because the Egyptians are on the top of the food chain and the Hebrews are on the very bottom of the food chain. And so in his anger, he kills an Egyptian slave master, suddenly realizes, oh shucks, 
I'm going to get into trouble for this. My, my secret is out. People are going to realize that I'm actually Hebrew. And so he does what every <clears throat> sensible person would do. He runs away. Into the desert. And uh, he meets his wife. And so he flees from Egypt. He defends Zipporah, his wife, at, the, at a well from a bunch of shepherds who are harassing her. Um, she takes him home and, hey presto, instant marriage. Because, you know, you defend a woman and you get married. That's how it was in those days. Um, <clears throat> and all of a sudden he's married and he is now living his best life as a shepherd in the desert with a wife and children and life is good. And one day, being the shepherd he was, he comes around a corner and he sees something very strange, a burning bush. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure in the desert there were fires, and it wasn't that strange to see a burning bush, but I'm pretty sure the bush would burn and then be burnt and then be gone. But this bush was not be gone. This bush was still there. It was still burning, and the leaves were still green. And so this was not a normal bush. This was not a normal burning bush moment. This was a, a pretty amazing and incredible burning bush moment. And so at this burning bush, God gives Moses his calling. And he says, Moses, <clears throat> basically I want you to go and free the people, be my salvation or my redemption. And it's the first time actually the word redemption is used in the Bible. But remember, it's only the second book of the Bible. So we haven't had much, I mean, we're here. So there isn't much Bible to go on yet. Um, and so he says, go and rescue my people. Moses is full of excuses. For those of you that, that know the story, he doesn't want to. He says he can't speak. He's nervous. He has a speech impediment. He wants his brother to go and do it, but God really doesn't care. He's, you are going. I'm calling you. I'm sending you. You are going. And so my st I want to pick up the story in chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 or 21. Let's go with 21. All right. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you. So Moses was equipped. God had taught him. God had given him a script. He knew what he had to say. Um, so all the wonders I have given you to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. It kind of sounds like fait accompli, right? Why do we have to go through ten plagues and all of that kind of stuff, and then we get to Israel out? Why did God have to be so mean to Pharaoh? Was it retribution for what Pharaoh had done to the Israelites? But then something really interesting happened, and this verse caused me great consternation for a couple of days. So God has just told Moses to go. He's just equipped Moses with some signs and some wonders, throw down the staff, it turns into a stake, pick up the staff, those things. He's just told him what to go and do. And then, verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, Moses was on his way. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, touched Moses' feet with it, and, surely, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. And so the Lord let him alone. What? The actual? 
So let me tell you where, where, where Pimlin and I came to, and I've read some commentary about this. Jeremiah 7 says that God knows our hearts, right? That God sees our hearts. God knew Pharaoh's heart. God knew that Pharaoh's heart was already hard. But he was showing Moses that through obedience, the outcome could change. God had planned to kill Moses in that moment. For whatever reason, we don't know. The Bible doesn't go into details. But God is showing us that obedience can change God's heart. God has changed his mind. This is, this is the first time I see in the Bible where God changes his mind. But think about Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, who was deathly ill and he was about to die. And he cries out to the Lord. He says, Lord, please spare my life. I'm not ready for this destiny. And God gives him another N years. I think it was seven. So God, 15. Thank you, Marie Claire. So God can, God can change his mind. And if Pharaoh's heart had softened throughout the story, could the, could the script have been have been different? Could the story have been different? All right. So the Lord has now left him alone, but he has learned that obedience can change, can change the outcome. So Pharaoh's hard heart. Now, depending on which version of the Bible, okay, now this is where you put your Bible nerd hat on, all right? Because we all know that God has identified Pharaoh's heart as hard, and he's already identified the fact that he's going to have to kill his firstborn son to be able to release, to, to have the Israelites released from the, from the Pharaoh's control, from the oppression. Um, but what's important to see is as we, go through, as we go through the different plagues in a minute, I want you to notice what the Bible says about Pharaoh's heart, because there are some plagues where it's, it is, it, the, the Hebrew word that is being used is not where God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but where Pharaoh's heart was already hard. And then later on, in, in, in the later plagues, where God gets really hardcore in terms of the, the plagues, it is where God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, there's also something interesting that I feel pertinent to mention at this point. We have a people who have been living in Egypt for more than 400 years. Remember, we're in the second book of the Bible, chapter 6. So we haven't got, we haven't got far in terms of the history of mankind um, and their relationship with God. And God, for the longest time, has had relationships with Noah. Noah built the ark. And then, a little bit later on, Abraham. And Abraham received the promise. Isaac and Jacob. So we've got four generations of people who really walked closely with God. And remember that Jacob was renamed to Israel. And this is where the, um, the nation of Israel is born. So we've had God having a close relationship with a family. And now what's happening is this, this is now translating to God having a close relationship with a nation. And so for the last 420 odd years that the, the Israelites have been in Egypt... They've heard stories about God. And it says in the word that they have cried out to God for their salvation. So they've heard stories. They've believed the stories of their forefathers. They've cried out, but they haven't really had tangible moments of God revealing himself to them. And the next, the next few chapters of Exodus, up to about chapter 12, is God reveals himself to, a re to them in a really, really big way and shows them to what lengths He's prepared to go to free them from the oppression that they are, that they are suffering under 
with the Pharaoh. So let's, let's have a look. So, where are we? We're in Exodus. And Moses has gone to Pharaoh and performed his signs and wonders, and Pharaoh's heart was hard, and Pharaoh was unmoved by the signs and wonders. And so what happens next? God says, okay, here come, here come plagues. Here I'm going to prove myself to, to Pharaoh. So now we pick up in Exodus 7 verse 14. And remember, we, and when we're looking here, we're looking at Pharaoh's response. What is Pharaoh's response to God? and to the, the wonders that God is performing. The plague of blood. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take your, in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the Nile and it will be changed into blood. And so that's what happens. The Nile is changed into blood. And we read further down in chapter 21, the fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink and blood was everywhere in Egypt. Any water that had been captured um, in the cisterns was also turned into blood. So the blood was absolutely everywhere. But what happened with Pharaoh in, chapter, in verse 23? Instead, he turned, went into his palace, and did not take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug up along the Nile, dug wells along the Nile to try and get drinking water because they could not drink the water in the river. The plague of blood shows that Pharaoh's a hard heart is self-reliant. A heart that is hard just relies on itself, relies, doesn't heed that it needs God, doesn't heed that it needs what the Lord can provide. So the next plague was frogs. So seven days after the blood, we move into, we move into a plague of frogs. And so there were frogs everywhere. Frogs in the house, out the house. Anybody not like frogs? Yeah, I know there are people who are like really... This could be freaking you out right now. Okay, good. Um, so the, the water, the frogs came out of the Nile, and maybe they came out of the Nile because of the blood. Who knows? But the frogs came out of the Nile, and they were in everything and on everything. And so Pharaoh summoned Moses and, and Aaron, and he said, take away the frogs. Please take away the frogs. And so Moses says, okay, I will take away the frogs. Um, and Pharaoh even says to him, you take away the frogs and I'll let you take your people away to go and make sacrifices to the Lord. Um, and Fe Moses says to Pharaoh, I leave you, um, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that your house may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. So Pharaoh says, tomorrow. You can pray for me tomorrow. So he, was, he didn't actually want them to go now. He didn't want to lose his slaves. Now, tomorrow was better. And this shows us that Pharaoh's response to this, a hard heart delays their obedience to God. I can get to this tomorrow. I can change my heart towards God tomorrow. There's plenty of time in life. I'll do it another time. I'll be obedient to God another time. I'll change my ways another time. It's a sign of a hard heart. So when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. 
Now what happens? So we move from frogs to gnats. Gnats, what are gnats? Flying things, those things that you see as you walk through, the, through a path that's enclosed. And I think they bite as well, sounds horrible. So now we have gnats. What happened in verse 19, 8 verses 19? The magician said to Shero, this is the finger of God. So the magicians are acknowledging that this is God, not them, that this is not natural power. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. So he wouldn't listen to counsel. He wouldn't listen to his magicians. He said, this is God. This is the God of the Israelites. Wouldn't listen. Has anybody else pointed out in your life that this is God, and you've gone, eh, maybe. Maybe it's just coincidence. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Next we have flies, plagues, swarms of flies. The plague of flies, what happened to Pharaoh, verse 8 verses 23. This is where God says, I will make a distinction between your people and my people. This is the first time in the, in the, in the plagues that the Israelites did not have the same thing happening to them that Pharaoh had had. God set them apart. So the flies were only a problem for the Egyptians. They weren't a problem for Pharaoh. And what was Pharaoh's response to this? Pharaoh said, all right, you can make sacrifices to God, but here, in, in this place. You can't go into the wilderness. You can make sacrifices to God in this place. He wouldn't acknowledge God in the situation. He wouldn't acknowledge that, that the um, Israelites needed to be obedient and go and make a sacrifice elsewhere. So... At, Verse 20, 32 says, At this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. So even though Moses had tried to explain to him that they couldn't put, make sacrifices here, that they had to make them elsewhere, he still had a hard heart and would not let the people go. All right, so the plague on livestock. So now the livestock die. So this is, this is livestock, just as in our African cultures, livestock is wealth. Livestock is, is meat and milk and eggs and all the things that we need to eat and survive and trade on. And so God attacks the Egyptians' economy and he attacks the, the farmers and the, and the livestock. And what happens here? Pharaoh investigates and he finds that not one of the animals of Israelites have died. It's only the Egyptian animals that have died. And yet his heart was still unyielding, and he still would not let the people go. So he's faithless. Even though God said, I'm going to protect my people, and your people who continue in their wicked ways will not be protected, he is still faithless in, in spite of the overwhelming evidence that God is real in his life. The next plague is particularly lovely. I spared you from some very interesting pictures I found on the internet. The plague of boils. The plague of boils, what happens to Pharaoh's heart? In the plague of boils, verse 12 says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so this is where, this is, this is where God has said, right, this is the pattern you want to carry on with. I'll harden your heart and I'll show you what I can do. And not only is he showing Pharaoh, but he's also showing the Egyptians. He's showing the Egyptian magicians. He's showing the Israelites. He's showing Moses, who's going to ultimately have to have a lot of faith to lead these Israelites through the, 
through the desert for as many years as he ends up doing. He's showing people his power. So in the plague of boils, Pharaoh doesn't care, and he doesn't care for the consequences and the pain that this is physically inflicting on others, on him, on his own family, on his magicians, on his people. But that gets even worse in hail. So when we get to the, the plague of hail, the officials, the officials of, we're now in Exodus 9 verse 20, for those of you that are trying to follow. The officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. So they believed that this could happen. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and their livestock in the field. Has anybody ever been caught in a hailstorm? How pleasant was that? Not pleasant at all. And I doubt that these were little hailstones. I think they were, in, and it was enduring. I mean, in Joburg, we've had hailstorms last for sort of 20, 30 minutes at the most. This was enduring hail. And animals and people were outside in this because they had not listened to the word of the Lord. Pharaoh had no care for the consequences that this was going to have on people and on livestock. But now Pharaoh realizes and he calls Moses, and this is the first time he acknowledges his sin, and he says, I have sinned. I have said to them, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you don't have to stay any longer. So then Moses replies, when I have gone out from the city, I will spread my hands out in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Again, God is proving that he can control nature. He can control lightning. He can control thunder. He can control hail. Not just for the benefit, I don't believe, of the Egyptians, but also for that of the Israelites who are about to go walk about in the desert. But I know that you and your officials still do not really fear the Lord, says Moses. Now the flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley was in ear and the flax was in bloom. But the wheat and the spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. So what that basically means is the Egyptians still had food. So even though their livestock had been killed, and even though they had lost part of the harvest, they still had some of the harvest to rely on. And so as soon as the hail, the hail subsides, and, and Moses has prayed, verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. So once again, changes his mind. Here come the locusts. So those crops that were still left, yeah, they're about to be destroyed. So now God sends, sends locusts. And he sends them, that, that, and he says here in verse 2, he says that you may tell your children and your grandchildren. He's saying this to Moses, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed the signs, many signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. The story was as much about God proving his might and power to the Israelites as it was about rescuing them from Pharaoh. And so what happens? 
Verse 7, Pharaoh's officials said to Pharaoh, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? So they've got no meat, no eggs, no barley, no wheat, no flax. They are pretty much economically ruined. So then what does Pharaoh say? He calls Moses and Aaron. He says, right, off you go, but tell me who will be going. So now he's got conditions. He wants to define the conditions of his obedience. And Moses answers, well, everyone's got to go. The young, the old, the men, the women, the livestock, everything's got to go. And Pharaoh says, okay, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and your children, clearly you are bent on evil. Pharaoh is suspicious that the Israelites have got another plot in mind. So he says, no, only the men can go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. So his, even though he's acknowledged his sin, even though he's acknowledged God's might, he still wants to put a condition on his obedience. I'll do this, but you have to do that. It's conditional. Don't negotiate with God. Right, so now we move from locusts and we move into darkness. So God brings darkness on Egypt. Goshen, where the Israelites lived, there was no darkness. They still had night and day, little pocket of light. Can you imagine how weird that must have looked if you're an Egyptian to look out and you see there's light here, but I'm still in darkness. It must have been so strange. But God once again proving that he rules and reigns, like Lauren said this morning, over the, the night and the day, over the land and the sea, over the fish and the fowl. He rules over all of it. And so what happens in the darkness? What is Pharaoh's response to that? The, the, the word actually also says here in verse 21 that the darkness could be felt. It was so oppressive that you felt it. And, and I can only imagine that that must have been very depressing. It must have felt like depression, that it made you, it just made you heavy. And so Pharaoh summons Moses and says, Go, worship the Lord. Even your woman and your children may go with you. Only leave your flocks behind. But the and Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we'll not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight, and do not appear before me again. The day you see my face is the day you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now the Lord said to Moses, I'm now in verse 11, sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that the men and the women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So the people, the people of Egypt acknowledged the Israelites, they acknowledged the Israelites' God. They acknowledged Moses's, uh, Moses as their leader. 
and we're willing to give them gifts. So, in verse eight, it says, "All the officials of you." Moses is now still in front of Moses is still in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's just told them to get out of his sight, and Moses is now delivering his rebuttal to Pharaoh. And so, this is what Moses says back to Pharaoh: He delivers a message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at the handmill, and all of the cattle as well. There will be found wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever was or ever has been or ever will be again. But amongst the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Here's a man who told God he was not going to be able to speak because he had a speech impediment. And God gives him a word like that to deliver to the most powerful human being that he has ever encountered. That's pretty incredible. So, off they go. Now, God's justice is God's justice is to take the firstborn son of the Pharaoh and of all the Egyptians and of everybody who does not participate in the sacrifice of blood. So what happens next is the the Passover. And the Passover, Moses goes back to the people of Israel and says, Right, we've got to do sacrifice. We're going to take the firstborn lamb, we've got to kill the lamb, we've got to take the blood of the lamb, and we've got to paint our doorposts on it. And when the angel passes over, he will not touch anybody in that household. That household will be spared from this justice. And so what happens is, Dan, I might need your help. What happens is the Israelites go and do this. They go and sacrifice lambs. And they take the blood of the lamb and they put them at the top of the doorpost. Can you hang that? Oh, there we go. And on the two sides of the doorposts, Marie Claire, can I borrow your red scarf? I've been eyeing it out all morning. Thank you. So I want you to imagine, right? This guy, the father of the house, he's got a bucket of blood. There's lots of blood and gore in the story, I'm sorry. Um, he's got a bucket of blood and he takes the, the leaves and he paints the top of the doorpost. And what's going to happen to that blood? It drips down. And then he paints the side of the doorpost. And then he moves across to the other side. We aren't even halfway through the Bible. And God is already showing us what he's going to do for us. 
God is showing us that obedience and sacrifice are coming later on. It's a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy of the Messiah that is going to come and is going to save us. It's going to save our firstborn children and our generation after generation after generation. So the Passover happens. God spares all of those who have that sign on their doorposts. And Pharaoh and all his officials and all of the Egyptians got up in the middle of the night. I'm now in chapter 12, verse 30. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt. For there was not a house without somebody dead. But then what happens? So the Israelites leave. Out they go. Carts, horses, cats, dogs, cows, everything. Livestock. And um, as they're going, the Egyptians give them gold and silver and jewels. Um, and they, they leave just as God had promised. Just as God, had, just as God had foretold. And once more, even though Pharaoh has seen his firstborn son killed by the power of the living God, he hardens his heart once more and chases them through the desert. And God stops the Israelites. And God actually changes the course of the Israelites to make it look like they're wandering aimlessly in the desert so that Pharaoh thinks that he can catch them. And when he does... And this is the story of the, of the Israelites driving into the Red Sea. Sorry, the Egyptians driving into the Red Sea to chase the Israelites. When he does, God destroys them once and for all and closes the water over them. It's an incredible story. It's absolutely incredible. There's almost, for me, there's almost nothing like it in the Bible again. It's a story of God turning hearts towards him, if you were Israelites, away from him, if you were Pharaoh. It's a story of signs and wonders. It's a story of God subduing the earth. But what God was trying to do here is he, was, he needed to free the Egyptians. He, uh, he needed to free the Israelites from the Egyptians. He needed to break the script. They had been oppressed for so long that he needed them to see a new reality. He needed to break the script. And I think that sometimes, and even myself, I can recognize times in my life when I've delayed my obedience towards God. And I realize that that is a symptom of a hard heart. And I want to take an opportunity this morning for us to look at our hearts and acknowledge where there might be hardness towards God in our hearts. Because ultimately, the point of the story is that God called Pharaoh to humble himself and acknowledge that God is his authority and that he couldn't redefine what good was on his own terms. God has actually defined that. God has defined good and evil, and we can't redefine that for him. Romans, in Romans 9, Paul talks about the story, the story of Egypt. And what, is his, what does Paul say? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on who God has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, that answers back to God? Can you imagine if, if God had been able to say that to Pharaoh? Who are you to talk back to me? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does the potter not have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and for another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles." The story of the Passover and the tradition of Passover is a tradition that's been passed from family to family to family to family. And I mean, in the, in the, I don't know if any of you have attended Passover, but if you have a, a very orthodox Jewish family, it's unlikely that they would invite you because Gentiles are not supposed to partake in Passover. And so how then do we become justified? How do we then become justified and have a relationship with the real God if it's only for Jewish people? And so what had to happen and what Paul is talking about in Romans 9 verse 14 to 24 is that through Christ, a way was made for us. The blood that satisfies in Exodus 12 verse 13 is now the blood that is now been transformed into Christ. The story is transformed from a, from a lamb that was used at Passover into Christ, who was the ultimate sacrifice and is the blood that ultimately satisfies on our behalf, satisfies that price that we needed to pay on our behalf. And it's a lot to take in that blood has satisfied on our behalf, that Christ, the blood of one guy, one Christ, has satisfied on our behalf. It's a lot to take in. But the Israelites had to have ultimate faith when they painted their doorposts, that the blood of that lamb was going to satisfy the requirement. Because if it wasn't, they'd already seen what God could do. And if it wasn't going to satisfy the requirement, they were going to wake up with dead children in the morning. And so they had had ultimate faith that by performing that ritual, that by putting that blood on their doorposts, on their lintels, that they were going to be covered by that blood. And that's what Christ asks of us. Christ asks us for the ultimate faith that this little baby that came into the world, Matthew 1 verse 23, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means that God is with us. That This little baby that came into the world and that eventually became the Passover lamb for us as Gentiles and made a way for us, we have to put our ultimate faith and trust that that is enough because that's all it is. 
The blood is the simple truth of our faith. We've got a lot more Bible than those Israelites had. We've seen a lot more in the more than 3,000 years that we've, we've had documented to us. Those Israelites had 10 plagues and a couple of stories passed down through generations. We've got so much more. But sometimes we get lost. We get lost in all of this. And we don't remember that what we celebrate now at Christmas is the beginning of the ultimate Passover. I hope you have enjoyed this recording. For more information about New Creation Family Church, please visit our website at www.newcreation.co.za. 